0: Welcome to Education Suspended, a podcast focused on exploring, engaging, and dialoguing with those in education who are passionate about changing the status quo and evolving the archaic system we have inherited. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Education Suspended. Jessica Fiverr here. I hope you're doing well. All right. I have been wanting to release this episode for a while and I'm so excited we finally are releasing it. Um, I was a little, well, probably not even a little, I was very start struck when we interviewed our guest today because I'm a little bit of a foodie and I love the show Top Chef. And today's guest is a contender from Top Chef. So today we connect with Chef Two, David Fu. And I'm not even sure where to begin on how important this conversation is. So while he is a phenomenal award-winning chef, his passion for bringing good food to the masses, in particular to the marginalized, is inspirational. He took time out of his schedule um, to connect with us and just, you know, deep dive into why we should focus on, ensuring that our students get good and healthy food. It really revolves around the fact um, that, you know, in September of 2020, so at the beginning of this school year, free lunches ended, which was started part of the COVID impact, but it was ended. Now there's a few states that are still doing it, but chef two really comes from the lens and and the science of why universal free lunches matter. We have such a good conversation. Um, He is So insightful. He's such a good storyteller. In fact, he's an Emmy-nominated filmmaker, um, and his film Bloodline—it's—it's really good. I encourage you all to watch it and just see the beautiful reality um, that that food is a universal connection, and we should really be utilizing that in in the realm of education. Anyway, I'm not doing this episode justice. I'm so sorry, but y'all are going to love it. I'm sure of it. So sit back and enjoy Education Suspended with Chef Two David Fu.
1: Hi guys. Hi. Hi. I want to tell both of you that I was so inspired by this guy Thank that you. I just made fried rice. <laughs> I've never done it in ever. I chopped garlic uh-huh. and onion and ginger and all I did, wanted to do is get that smell in my house. That's awesome. <laughs> it is awesome. And so uh, it's not as fancy and good as yours, but it was a wonderful experience. It doesn't need to be fancy.
2: All it needs to be is delicious.
1: So you've inspired me already. Now you can inspire me for the
2: next hour. (laughs) Thanks for having me on today. I connected with Jessica uh, a few weeks back and I was just excited to do this. And thank you for your time. Thank you for the space. And I can't wait for all the juicy conversation and talk that we'll kind of get into.
0: I have promised Grainer that I will not monopolize (laughs) this episode. Um, and I guess I just want to give our our listeners a little bit of the backstory and then I'm gonna hand it off to you. But I don't know if many people know this. I, I do love to cook. I don't think I'm very good, but I do love to cook. And one of the things that I do that I think is self-care, though people don't probably think it it fully is, is that I, I do like cooking shows. And so obviously I learned of you on Top Chef. And um I think my my heart and my mind and my world exploded when I then saw on Instagram that you were gonna be doing a Ted talks titled Mm -hmm. more than just free lunch. And in that instant, I was like, holy buckets, we need to get him on the podcast. Um, and alas, here we are. So dreams do come true. So I am so grateful that you joined us. So we start all of our episodes the same. I'm going to have you introduce yourself to our listeners, talk about what you do, how you got there, and then, um, our favorite part is if you would just reflect on your own educational experience and what's the interconnection with where you're at now? How does that play out? How did that influence you? And then we'll go from there. So I'll, I'll hand it off to you.
2: Hi, everybody. My name is Tu David Fu. I am a Top Chef alumnus, author, and filmmaker. And I'm excited to have this amazing and interesting and hopefully soulful conversation with you guys today. Um, I am interested. In telling people's stories, telling my own stories, telling my mother's stories, and um, finding the perfect intersection of human compassion, food, culture, and science-backed data. Because <laughs> in the day and age of 2023, I believe all those things are extremely important. Because without those things, we won't be able to find how we're all connected and why we do things and why we should do things. My parents are Vietnamese refugees. They came over here in 1975. They're what you know or what people know as boat people, meaning they were refugees who escaped by boat and then got sponsored here through the United States. Came to Oakland, California, gave birth to my sister. Thought there was an opportunity up in Minnesota for my dad to work gave birth to me in Minnesota, Southeast Asians going through their first winter experiencing frostbite for the first time. Mind you, Vietnam is a constant 80, 90 degrees Fahrenheit. My sister gets frostbite. I have no recollection of St. Paul, Minnesota, moved us back to Oakland. That's where I spent most of my time, most of my youth and adulthood. And in Oakland, naturally, we, you know, most, if not all refugees are um, starting off from the bottom. And particularly my parents. You know, we were in a sort of a, I call it an abandoned neighborhood. Other people refer to it as ghetto or the projects. I couldn't consider it or refer to it as an abandoned neighborhood because I feel like our community spaces, we are the forgotten. You know, they didn't invest in us. We lived in red line districts where they didn't give us enough schools. They didn't give us any parks and accessibility to parks. They didn't give us any grocery stores so we could feed ourselves and nourish ourselves. And that's also reflected into the school system School system as well. Both my parents worked. My dad was a fishmonger, um, career-long, working night shifts. My mother worked the mornings. So having school meals for me, subsidized school meals or free lunch, if you will, was extremely important. I think that was a blessing for my mom and dad. My mom, because she had to get to work early, the fact that she could drop me off early at school, know that you know I get some sort of nourishment. in in the form of um, free breakfast was great for her. In addition to that, having free lunch, I I thought it was amazing. It was was definitely a lifesaver for us to have free lunch. I think most of my nutritional value came from school meals, you know, now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah, if it wasn't for school meals, I probably would have starved, you know? And I think a lot of people, a lot of kids, I think that's something that is very unseen here in the United States is that we have a prejudicial look on what economic status looks like. And that translates into hunger. I think a lot of kids experience hunger across all spectrums of ethnic colors, quote unquote. And I was one of those kids. In addition to that, and I'm very proud that, you know, all the work that I'm doing this year, and, you know, if if you guys have been keeping up with the news, um, California is one of the first states in the United States to... Commit to free school lunches for all kids. Um, it was enacted during the pandemic because there's a lot of families suffering and it was just giving out free food for everyone, but they kept it because I think it really did show in the pandemic how much people were um, financially or economically suffering in the home. I think one of the most transparent ways of seeing that is the amount of people getting in line for free food, not just for their kids, but for their families, number one. Number two, when I was in in my youth or our youth, if you will, (laughs) the way they approached kids getting subsidized free lunch was they would do it with a roll call. You know, they would call out your name and you would say, here, raise your hand, stand up. And then you would say either paid free lunch, which all the rich kids were paid free lunch, if there were any in my school, right? Or at least the financially stable kids, not rich, but financially stable kids. I would have to stand up, raise my hand and say free. And I remember I I went through a phase where I didn't want to say free and I starved because I didn't want to be embarrassed. You know, this is where childhood friends and bonds come really tight is that, you know, for the days that I did starve, I am like, I would ask my friend for a sandwich and he'd give me a sandwich, (laughs) stuff like that. And I think furthermore, it fueled my interest to work upon the legal working age, 15 and a half. And I think the proudest thing for me was not to get a cell phone, not to get a pair of shoes, was that I could subsidize my parents' refrigerator with food so I could feed myself and make my own lunch. I've been making my own lunch. You know, at the very age I was able to put groceries in my refrigerator. Food is a powerful thing. It's a human right. I feel that as of 2020s, we still have access of barriers for people to get food. I just want to be very clear when I talk about meals and I'll talk about food and nourishment, and nutrition, and I'm going to get a few people upset, but I think the notion of giving needy people leftovership is total bullshit. Yeah. Just because you're housing insecure, just because you're poor, I shouldn't be eating leftovers from a restaurant. I feel appreciative of it. And I feel like people have that sort of thought with homeless or home insecure culture. And that's why I do a lot of work in that space where I, I've cooked for Housing insecure, even though I'm a top chef um, in a restaurant space through by a tasting menu, because I I feel like that's th- those things. I've cooked in prison in San Quentin Penitentiary. I cooked with incarcerated men um, in a rehabilitation program and training program, because I feel like food has that sort of power to make people feel human, and I feel like that's a that's either a great reset point or a great point to be preventative. For, for any underlying issues that they may have, whether it may be drug abuse, gang affiliation, crimes, and even healing for, for domestic abuse victims, housing insecure. That's the one universal thing that we all need as human beings that we can all share. We may not wear the same clothes. We may not speak the same language, but we can, eat, we can all eat the same food.
0: Wow, you said a lot of stuff that I, w- I just want to jump and go down all those different rabbit holes. I think first and foremost, right? Your acknowledgement that our understanding or our um, assumptions of what food insecurities look like really create a system that continues to impact the marginalized in a in a such a poor manner. I think uh, our society has this kind of one size fits all of like what we we would assume someone would look like who has the need and support for for food um, and for, you know, Steve and I working in schools, one thing that there are so many negative things to COVID, but to your point, one thing that happened is that there was this universal free lunch across the board. And so for the first time, there was a level playing field and no one had to think twice. And I I loved your story um, about paid or free, no one had to worry about that. And just the access that it gave students. And so, I mean, you talked about California, right? I know Colorado just passed something. There's there's several states that have found a way to continue or are finding a way to continue to offer that. But it's it's not a majority. That's for sure. I think it's maybe 10 to 12 states that I'm aware of. The other piece, and I actually don't even know where I where I want to go with this, is the, this connection of, of Maslow. <laughs> you highlighted this, this concept of the intersectionality, right? A mar- Being a marginalized student and having food insecurities. And so one thing that we understand about us as, as humans, that everything is interconnected and we try really hard to silo things. You're this, or you're this, and everything, everything plays out together. Even when I was preparing for this interview, I was reflecting on when someone comes into my home to show them safety, to show them that this is a space that we they are cared for, what's the first thing that you do? You offer them a food and drink. And so it's just mind boggling to me. We find reasons to not do that in the educational environment, which is paramount for needing safety and security
1: in so many different ways. I'm so glad... Chef too talked about the shame that kids feel and and you having to raise your hand. I, I actually remember being a young teacher. I was a my wife was a stay-at-home mom. I was a teacher in North Dakota. And I qualified for reduced lunch for myself and my kids. And I was too ashamed to take it. I can understand that side of it. And yet, not only have you done things to eliminate the shame. But you've also brought a level of creativity that I was really touched by when I when I listened to you talk on on a couple of different <clears throat> videos that I watched. One, one was especially love is making things delicious, not just filling,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but love is making things delicious and and not losing the connection to students. I think it, it's interesting that some of the things you've done to not only bring food security to students, but how you've brought creativity. And kind of a sense of pride to them being part of the food service portion of school. Yeah, I think
2: inspiration comes in many shapes and forms. The way I see it is artists make art so people can feel the beauty that they're painting. Musicians make music so people can hear the beauty that they're making. I think I make food so people can taste the beauty, but I think. The way that translates for me is that i want to make people feel beautiful feel self-worthy of having a meal that tastes amazing like you said delicious i think that's the most important thing for me i think we live in this culture where it's very patriarchal western culture where every rap song or every mogul or (laughs) goldcast.com social media instagram account Always had this narcissistic praising sort of narrative where it's very inward. I'm I'm the best. No one can be on my level. I found my calling. I found my appreciation of people and people's appreciation of me is that I I go the total polar opposite way. I want to find the commonalities in my experiences, and I want to come down to other people's level to share that 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 human feeling. So, for example, people are like, I love what you're doing with like Vietnamese food. You were on a top set. I don't think those are the things that people appreciate. I think people appreciate more of the fact that it's am celebrating my mother's food and people can identify, no matter what culture, across the spectrum of how universal those feelings are. Your mom making soup when you're sick, your mom trying to put food on the table, your mom feeding the family, right? Your parents both working really hard to. Those are all sort of universal themes that I think people really appreciate. And I feel like there isn't a uniqueness to that. If there's anything unique at all is that I just, I have a conviction. I have a commitment. I am convinced that that's what people should be celebrating. And I'm, I'm sticking, I'm sticking to that. And I think that is empowering for people. So it's less about me and it's more about sort of like human connection and human compassion.
1: Can I just ask you to finish that thought, connecting it with
2: your experience at San Quentin? I was a volunteer for about two, about two to three years, um, in a program called Quentin Cooks, and we did it two to three quarters every year, on Mondays only. We show up at six a.m. in the morning, and I'm traveling all the way from the East Bay, so it's about forty-five minutes drive out. So that means I'm up at five in the morning just to be there at six. And we go into San Quentin Penitentiary into the commercial kitchen to cook with incarcerated men as, number one, as a rehabilitation program, number two, as a work training program for their release. In that program, there would be safety sanitation certified, which is a basic standard permit that every food handler or any person who handles food, they need that permit to be able to work in a food space. So they get a certification, go through the courses of that. But I think the most important thing there was that you have different identities from different places who get to co-mingle with each other. Outside of that kitchen, if they co-mingled with each other, they probably get stabbed to death. And I'm I'm not exaggerating. We had an Aryan Brotherhood. I remember a guy named Art cook and befriend a guy who was a black slossing Crip from Southern California. You know, I think I think those things are incredibly beautiful. No matter how big, how scary, how many tattoos they have, one guy would nick his finger. (laughs) And then they'll be freaking out. I'm like, hey, you're supposed to be a tough guy, right? (laughs) And I was like, oh, I nicked my finger. And the insane thing was that because there's a security issue, all the knives are hooked up to these extremely heavy chains, chained to the table. So when you're slicing stuff, it's clinking, 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 even like you're slicing like garlic or or lettuce or whatever. The things that really kept me coming it was incredibly emotional because of the setting obviously which i won't get too much into and in addition to that all the stories that came out from the incarcerated men art for example the uh the former aryan brotherhood gentleman told me he'd never seen a lettuce hole or a tomato hole because he spent all of his life either on the back of a motorcycle in a motorcycle gang, or riding a motorcycle himself and in a day he would spend five dollars he ate this for decades is a burger with lettuce and tomato in it. That's the only time he saw a vegetable. And as a dessert, like a, like a Snickers bar or whatever. And, you know, with the soda and the fries and he's on the road and that, that would last him all day. We, we had an uproar of celebration because this is a guy who's never even seen tomato or lettuce before, but he, he loved eggplant. We made Baba Ganesh for him. Uh, one of my good friends, Cal Peter now, which is a James Beard-winning author, he was a former chef at Shape and Ease Berkeley. Um, he actually did the volunteering with me. Yet he made his Shape and Ease, like <laughs> world-class Baba Ganoush eggplant and art ate it. And he just flipped out.
0: It's interesting, Chef. We can talk about the science piece. And this is what always gets me is When they decided to cut free lunches, it started at the beginning of the school year, September 2022, they did not pass free lunches. One of the things that stood out to me ties into what you just said. If I think about some of the the most rich social environments during the school day for kids, it's typically in the lunchroom. It's typically when kids can eat and be a, a community together. And so it just broke my heart that again, we were going to have kids going back that that it wouldn't feel safe anymore. Their ability to kind of just be and connect with their peers was going to be impacted <coughs> to some degree because they would be focused, A, do I even have food to bring to school? And and then outside of that, is it gonna? Is it gonna look different? Am I gonna be judged? What what's what's the ramifications from my peers gonna be? So I think there was something about your story right there that that highlighted that.
2: That's the emotional security part, right? But then there's also a nutritional security part um, on the flip side of that. So I mean, I've done a few, I've done a few audits of a few school districts, and I'm not going to mention their names, but I've learned that there's quite a bit of lobbying in our food systems. There's a reason why Ronald Reagan wanted to declare ketchup as a vegetable. There's a reason why, why Donald Trump cut all the funding for school meals because with a lower price point, I think right now it's about $4 to $5 national average for school meals for kids, if that, right? Um, with the lower dollar amount and with no infrastructure to cook meals from scratch, schools are forced to buy processed foods like hot dogs, chips, and uh, frozen pizza, right? And that industry are the food conglomerates, the fast foods of the world. There's only a few, there's only a handful that, that dominate that space. And they have a heavy hand in politics and a heavy hand in influencing how and when they get money. I just
0: want to point out, it's not far-fetched that often the schools or the school districts that are providing some fairly processed food because their their budget is small and they they have to they have to, or they choose to put it somewhere else are also oftentimes in the district where there's a high amount of marginalized students, where there's already these food deserts that exist. So really they're going for some a lifetime to your point, right? A lifetime without seeing something as simple as a tomato.
2: I think when you're marginalized, there's a complex where you're just trying to make it, you're just trying to make it, and then you're just trying to make it out. And I don't blame parents, but like parents have historically, especially in marginalized neighborhoods, um, asked schools to invest in their school programs and in their sports programs so their kids can excel further in life. If that's the case, then that absolutely has to be secondary to nutritional value. And that is also contradictive of what we believe as a human right. Nutrition is a human right. Access to clean, safe food has always been a human right. It's not a new idea. Those are things that we carry forth with us when we engage in other countries. Like we give them food, (laughs) you know. When we engage in war, we give them food. Like it's it's at the top of the list everywhere else, but here at home, which is strange to me.
0: Yeah, even if you look at the World Central Kitchen, right? Something that a lot of people know about and the amazing work that they do. It's it's mind-boggling to me. Of how they can get they're they're in the war torn areas right they're in California right now where the world is falling apart and yet we cannot get good healthy meals to our students like it just it's just mind boggling I just don't understand yeah.
2: it you know what's interesting is that I've cooked in I've cooked in prison I've seen their kitchen set up and I've been into school quite a few school cafeterias it's so interesting that the cafeterias look like prison cafeterias. It just shows the lack of interest. And it's it's, it's at the very bottom of the totem pole to make sure kids get nourished. Proof is in the pudding, as they like to say, right?
1: And pudding is a pretty popular food in in all those (laughs) places. I I just have to chip in. Hospitals are the same. Hospitals are the same. Of all the places you think you could, should get the most nutritious food. What what better places to have, you know, nutritious and really good tasting food? And and it's just the opposite. But I think it comes back to what you guys have been talking about that good food should be a human right. Just like healthcare you know, should be a human right and education a human right. And we just you know, haven't gotten there.
2: And, and you know, I have to confess, like I have a lot of friends that lived that went down the wrong path. You know, I grew up in Oakland. Oakland's rough. You know, I grew up 80s and the 90s. At the peak of the crack epidemic, I had a friend named, I'm not going to say his name, but I have a friend that, you know, was born crack addicted, you know, and his mother was addicted to crack. And the only way he found ways to feed himself was to sell crack to his own family members. Every time I go back to, and I just resurface and try to relive the moments of why my friends ended here, why did my friends didn't survive. I'm telling you, like a lot of my friends did things that they didn't want to do, specifically crime, because they were hungry. That's such a shame to me. It gets um so frustrating for me because we are I feel like I think as a nation, as a city, as a state, we have a lot of resources. It's being exploited and we're we're being really illogical about
0: it. Yeah, you said, you know, it's at the bottom of the totem pole, which is just. To me, extremely ironic because at the at the, the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of need, <laughs> right down there is food. <laughs> so it's you know it's interesting and that then, we're just not focusing
2: on this. And then teachers as well too. I have a I have a good colleague of mine who lives in Milpitas. They were desperate to get teachers into their schools because the Milpitas real estate for the past year and years before was so expensive. Teachers couldn't teachers couldn't afford to live there. So, like, there's something wrong with our school system. Is it one thing? Is it multiple things? Is it all stemming from the same thing?
0: Yeah, and one of the questions that we've, you know, been asking, and we're right at the beginning of season three, but through season one and and season two, there's this this underlying theme of the system's not working for so many. Everything is interconnected. Everything. Mm -hmm. I do want to shift, and, Grainer, you brought it up a little bit already, But another piece of your story that I'm really intrigued about is your connection (coughs) of food to story, your capacity to utilize this form of art to share your sense of identity, to find your sense of identity. And we talk about quite a bit with with students, you know, sometimes they're, they're in environments in which their sense of identity is not allowed. Right, that their sense of identity is pushed to the side, and so I'm wondering, how do you use food? What what are what are things that you do to connect food to identity? How does that show up for you?
1: I just want to throw in that phrase that you used that I love the Vietnamese diaspora, and, and how that food was connected to telling that story. Thank
2: you for that, Steve. Um, really appreciate that. that. You're hitting the nail right on the head. I was just going to say. <laughs> But just, just for clarity, like there's, a, there's refugees and there's diaspora. And those two terms often get inflated or mixed up. Um, refugee is the person. is a person who, ha- who is forcefully removed from their country and they have to seek asylum in another country. So that, that's, that's a refugee. Diaspora is the experience of that refugee in a new place. So my parents are refugees. But the way they experience themselves as Vietnamese refugees in Oakland, their collective experience, their collective community in that space, that's their diaspora, if that makes any sense. So to further elaborate, I'm not a refugee, yet I can't be traditional Vietnamese because I don't live in Vietnam. If anything, I am Vietnamese in diaspora. I am part of my parents diaspora i'm their children in this new place the reason why i've learned and explored those words from my good friend Reem so of, of Reem's kitchen you know she's a food and wine best chef and you know james beard winner and um but she's of palestinian origins and she taught me about um diaspora through her palestinian lens the reason why i speak about diaspora because it helps people from Vietnam understand how what what my a v- a Vietnamese experience is like, and how we cooked food here in the United States. So, for example, it wouldn't make sense for my mom to cook authentic Vietnamese food because she didn't have Vietnamese ingredients. We live in a predominantly Black neighborhood, with lots of brown stores around us, right? So, how does she cook Vietnamese food? I I think it's Vietnamese food. But it's not the Vietnamese food that she had growing up, no matter how hard she tried. It just could never be the same thing because the ingredients are not the same. And ingredients are tied to certain palate notes that are specific to certain notes that would emulate your childhood, your culture, your tradition, your family. When people say, wow, this tastes like home, it's because there's an ingredient in there. That speaks a note the way a word would speak a verb or a description or a phrase or song or note. The notes that my mom created, she created notes and song in her own beautiful jazz like improvisation symphony way for what I associate with home, as in Vietnamese diaspora, but not Vietnamese, Vietnamese Phu Quoc Island back in the old land. Because to me, those two things taste totally different, but does it mean that her food is, to me at least, it's not. Un- I don't undervalue it at all because it's not what people subject it to be. And, I, and that's what I celebrate. You know, there's a lot of people in diaspora, not just in the United States, but in the world. And their parents had a longing sense of home. And they tried to improvise in the most beautiful ways of trying to illustrate and sing these songs and notes and symphonies through food and taste for the kids. And we should be able to celebrate that. History is always evolving. So is food. So are recipes. So is culture. I,
1: I just want to love what you, something you just said. I wrote it down. I've never thought of the ingredients to food like I think of notes in a chord. That was a beautiful metaphor, my friend. And I, I just want to appreciate it. Even today when I was teasing you about cooking one of your recipes, like, what a beautiful three-note chord ginger, onion, and garlic made in my fry pan. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and that smell um, brought a connection. In the, this moment in time, I need it. And just like music, it may be
2: a three-note chord, but there's so many different pitches. And those pitches are how you cook it, how long you cook it, how much heat did it gets exposed to. Even though it's a three-note chord, you can make a beautiful song with it.
1: And the other thing that that came up with me when you were talking about the sort of the fellowship of chefs was how food gets people to attach and how how maybe you've experienced that and, and I'd like to know more I'm guessing the prisoners at San Quentin
2: excuse me Steve you shouldn't say prisoners you say incarcerated men
1: you okay I'm sorry the incarcerated men okay. at San Quentin mm-hmm. and I stand corrected and I appreciate it I, I'm wondering how they grew closer to in the in the community that you created in the kitchen
2: Uh, that's a great question steve i feel that good food is universal for everyone you don't need a culinary palate whether you're incarcerated whether you're a a child Um, scientifically speaking the reason why things taste delicious is because things are at its peak season let's talk about produce specifically the reason why ripe oranges or ripe grapes or ripe cherries taste so good us is because it's at its peak nutrition so and when it's at its peak nutrition the plant itself will emit these perfumes and oils out into the air so um, something or someone will be attracted to it to eat it and then by eating it let's just say orange with the seeds included we will process it and then put it back into the soil you know we're talking about cave mandates and that's how the tree or the plant will replant itself but it can only do that if it Emits the things out to let us know that it's delicious, it's nutritious, and we should be eaten. And that's universal for more, every ingredient. You don't need to be culinary trained, intelligent, smart to be able to appreciate these things. And I, I, I find that, like the science space, the food space is gate kept by food individuals who believe in a prejudicial way that they're special and that not not everyone can be aristocratic with nature and i think that's total bullshit right that stems from like colonial racist bullshit when christopher columbus was coming over to the americas and pointing fingers at the natives saying that they're barbarians They don't know what they're doing with nature. We will take these things from them, their art, their money, their food, their gold. And we're going to make it better because we know the value of these things, things. They don't. And I feel like that's the same tone that we get in food. People always ask me, like, why are you cooking for incarcerated men? They don't know what good food tastes like. And I always stand corrected. I'm like, hey, or I stand them corrected. Like, it's not that they don't know good food. It's just no one's ever cooked them a good meal. It's totally different. So it's my conviction that from my time cooking in schools, interacting with kids, they've loved the food that I cooked, right? Because it was delicious. And I didn't need to tell them, train them, entice them, trick them to eating it, period. Same thing with uh, incarcerated men. Same thing with housing insecurity. I all cooked delicious milk because behind behind all of the, the baggage, the guffer, whatever they have, you know, whatever unfortunate place they are in life, at one time they were a child, you know, if they weren't if they aren't already, they were a person, they human being. You know, they eat other things in their life that they enjoy. Maybe not as high quality as, as myself, as a top chef. But you know, like you know, maybe mama made instant ramen for them, you know, and it was delicious. And I'm sure like you can make the same thing for them. But not Instagram, but make the actual chicken noodle soup that it still hit those same notes for them. But even better because it's nutritious now. I think for me, that's that's such a a cloud of misunderstanding in people. It's because of the TV show, right? We, we want to reserve it for the chefs to be able to say what's good and what's not. And I, I try to debunk it all the time. It's totally yes, nice.
0: chef. I'm wondering if you can talk about you have these experiences of of bringing. Your skill to different environments, including schools, including with students. And I also think that we miss the boat big time on actually just using cooking as a form to teach kids different things, right? Science is involved, writing is involved, storytelling (coughs) is involved. Um, So I'm wondering if you can speak on that a little bit. Because if I think about everything, even when I'm cooking with my little three year old daughter next to me, I'm teaching her. Absolutely. I'm, and so I'm wondering, can, can you talk a little bit about how that shows up in your work?
2: I think I'll, if I could just back up and just do a macro view of things, I feel that no matter what time and place in history, planet stewardship has always been the most important thing. Uh, they just had different labels for it. We need to protect our resources. We need to protect our freshwater supply, our oceans, our land, our plants, electricity, energy. Everything is intertwined Back to the planet that we exist on, so it's planet stewardship. And I feel like the quickest way to understand and appreciate planet stewardship or care for the planet is to get kids to eat whole ingredients that come from nature, eat whole vegetables. If they eat fish, eat fish. If they eat pork, chicken, or beef, um, they should learn about mammals. That's a great in- entry way, and it comes full circle for kids to understand and actually touch and feel and, and, and be, a, be a part of this ecosystem that they could put direct effect to by just deciding if they want to eat or if they don't want to eat. That's number one. That's like the, that's like the simplest way to engage, right? And then from that comes everything else. If they're gonna learn more about it, then they're gonna to have to learn how to read or they're gonna to have to uh, be taught by a teacher. And for them to express how they feel about it, they have to articulate it. So now they're gonna to have to learn how to write, they have to learn how to, how to stand in front of class and speak. And then it goes further further on. If they go into the science field, they're gonna to have to learn all the backdrops of like how it works scientifically, biological, chemistry, sometimes physics, sometimes quantum physics, right? So it, it just keeps going on up. I believe the basis that I felt like I missed out on and I, I hope to implement in the future if they're not already doing so, because I'm just not in the education space in that sort of way, is that they should teach at the earliest stage possible. Planet stewardship, right? Period.
0: I like I like that lens because that's that's the basis for everything else.
1: I- I'm kind of looking for the win-win. I think Jessica and I do that a lot, like the cooking that could go on in school, locally sourced foods, um, not the kind of macro let's get the cheapest stuff we can get kind of idea have you seen a success story where schools are sourcing local farmers produce and making it work in a way that is benefiting a a, a larger group not just students and teachers but actually a, a larger community because we want a vision for the future that's better than what we're able to do at the moment
2: I think Vacaville actually is one of the perfect examples because they're one of the first schools to fully, they're one of the first school districts, excuse me, to implement that. They connect it with regenerative ranchers, regenerative agriculture, or farms that practice regenerative agriculture in the effort to not just get kids nutritious food, but also to reduce carbon emissions. So it comes like full circle. And the amount of money that they spend there, even though they're spending a little bit more money or a lot of more money, you know, in terms of like budget and revenue, they found that kids, more kids are eating their school lunches exponentially um, doubled from last year. And they're ordering less pizzas because you can't just take the pizzas away. You have to slowly pull it away. If they're not ordering it, they've been able to cut that order in half in one year time. That's a huge number. And pizza is hard to compete with. Uh, I love pizza. A lot. And the way they worked around that obstacle, that issue is that because schools get uh the way they get their funding or way they get their budgets for school meals is that if they have more students eating, they will get they will get a higher funding. So, like let's say for example, they have five bucks for 10 kids. Now you have 50 kids, now you have five bucks times 50 kids, and that's the budget that they work with. So they'll get more money for it to feed the kids. So I think that's a system that I think they've Kind of figure it out because that was a huge concern, having kids eating higher quality foods, buying higher quality products, but they're having a the price go up. But at the same time, I, I do want to argue as well, too, is that um, we do need to increase school budgets for foods for farm to school foods, period. Vacaview is an ideal school district.
0: That's a great example, and we should stalk them to get them on the podcast.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I can make a connection to the, uh, to the people who started it. Um, and if I could add another thing for schools that are wondering who want to do it, or school districts who want to do it, whether you're a teacher, a district supervisor, or even um, part of the PTA, there's an organization called Eat Real Certified that helped Vacaville School District connect from farms to their school cafeteria. However, those are for more for the more of the marginalized school districts where you know they need help with funding and whatnot. Um, but they can also direct you for the more affluent school districts who who have the capital or the finances to build that infrastructure. Because not all school districts, unfortunately, are built. They're not built equally. Chef, uh, I can't
0: thank you enough for for coming on Education Suspended. The work that you do in this area is phenomenal. And I'm so grateful that you're doing it, and you're fighting for these students and for the teachers, to your point, right? Everything is interconnected.
2: I feel so grateful to be on this podcast and so appreciative of that the work you're doing because you know you're you're helping spreading these amazing stories that people need to hear. And thank you for having me. So. Yeah, means a right. lot.
0: <laughs> yeah, that means a lot. That means a lot. um well, we we should stay in touch.. Um, And
1: thanks for fighting the good fight.
2: We all we got, so yeah, it's the only fight we need to fight. Yeah, we
1: knew this would be a great episode, but it was greater.
2: (laughs) It was greater. How about I hope that it could be the greatest if that's even possible.
0: It's it's not a competition, but it's always a competition. So well said, (laughs) well
1: said. Awesome. Yeah, thank you so much, and thank you for bringing a bigger view. It, It was just really important.